Welcome to the Woodridge Baptist Church Podcast. For more information about what's happening in the life of our church, visit our website at www.woodridge.org. Enjoy the podcast. We're going to be in the book of Exodus chapter 17. We've been in this, this study on the names of God. That when the people of God find themselves in circumstances, it's not one of those moments where they say, you know, I've read in the Bible that, and then they talk about something about the character of the attributes of God. It's that the people of God are experiencing the character of God and the protection of God and the provision of God in the real life circumstances that they find themselves in. And it won't be any different today. So while you're turning to Exodus 17, let me give you just a little bit of the background so that you know what's happening here in this passage. If you were to look at Exodus chapter 12, this pretty cool moment, the Israelites were delivered from the Egyptians. Some of you would probably think that's a pretty great thing if you'd been in bondage for over 400 years, right? You know, that's a good day. In Exodus chapter 14, you know, they're escaping. They're technically out of the grips of the Egyptians, but they come up to the Red Sea. Some of the Old Testament scholars would say the Sea of Reeds, but they come up to the Red Sea and there's this body of water and they're like, okay, but then you've got the Egyptian army coming from the back there and you go, all right, so we can't go that way because, well, there's water. We can't go that way because, well, there's an army where do we go? And as you can remember, God parts the water and he provides a way. He's the one that provides a path. If you were to look at Exodus chapter 15, this is three days in the desert with no water. So they just have passed through the Red Sea. They get to the other side and they go out into the desert. And the reason they did it is because it was the path home. It's the right way. They didn't make a mistake like some of us where you're just driving around and you go, how did we get here? It was exactly where they were supposed to be. The catch was there was no water for them to drink. And for those of you that know what it's like when you're in a place that's hot and after a while you're like, I need some Dasani, right? Well, there wasn't any Dasani. And so three days, but then they show up at this place called Mara. And it's like, oh, there's water. And you go, that's great. Problem is, water's bitter. Can't drink it. Can't drink it. Until the Lord transforms the water and then the people are able to take it in. God, once again, provides water. And even beyond Mara, they travel down the road. They show up at this place called Elam. And at Elam, there are different pools of water, one for each of the tribes of Israel and the 70 leaders of Israel. They even have date trees. It sounds like a good day, right? So here you have this moment of, where are we going to get our water? And then God says, here, I'm going to provide it. You saw that in Exodus chapter 15. And then you flip over just one more chapter in Exodus chapter 16, and God provides manna from the sky. You know, it's not just true that you get thirsty every now and again. Did you know you also get hungry? Well, they were hungry. And imagine that you're traveling around and you go, well, people have to eat, but if you're constantly moving, where is the, where's the provision going to come from? And God provides it. Literally just dropping manna, you know, meaning what is it? Just dropping it from the sky. And it's sufficient to sustain the people for the journey that's ahead of them. And now in chapter 17, they're at this place called Rephidim. Rephidim. And let me read just part of this coming from uh, chapter 17, verses 1 through 4. It says, and there was no water for them to drink. Boy, does that sound familiar. Now, on the one hand, that should make sense. If you've ever been over to this area, it's not exactly known as the land of lakes, right? Water is kind of a premium. And so if you're traveling, you're probably gonna be traveling through kind of deserty kind of terrain. It's gonna be a little bit rough, ragged. It's gonna be dry. 
but there was no water for them to drink. So the people again contended with Moses. So they get thirsty. They look to the leader and they're like, we're kind of ticked. We've done this before. We're sick of having to go through this. And here's what they said. Give us water to drink. It's like, you do it. Now that's kind of a big thing to ask a guy, right? There's no water out here in the land. And so we're just expecting you to provide water. Now Moses is doing his job. He's leading the people. It's just that the people aren't liking where Moses is leading them to. But he's doing everything, at least at this, he's doing everything right. Give us water to drink. Of course, Moses, if he had a snarky moment, he went, sure, let me just get my canteen out here for you. He doesn't have one of those. So they're asking something that on the face of it, it seems a little unrealistic, but nevertheless, they're asking it. And here's what Moses answered to them. He says, you don't contend with me, you contend with the Lord. In other words, he gives them a pretty good little shakedown and puts them back in their place. Sometimes leaders have to do that. And so he does it. You're not messing with me, you're messing with God. And then they replied to him this, why in the world did you lead us out of Egypt? Ever had a moment like that where you say something that if you kind of pump the brakes, you'd be like, that's the dumbest thing I've probably ever said. That's probably their moment right there. Why did you even lead us out of Egypt? You know, I mean, at least there we had snacks and stuff. You also were slaves, right? Remember enjoying that all that time? You weren't, in, you weren't at home. You're displaced. But man, you had snacks. That's where these people are at. Why did you even lead us out of there? Moses, by the way, does what Moses does. He talks to God. These people don't. So you have a leader that's following God, but you have a lot of people that aren't. Now imagine that dynamic. The followers aren't necessarily listening to God while the leader is listening to God, but they're trying to twist his arm. You see what I'm saying? It creates kind of a weird dynamic there because Moses probably could have felt a lot of pressure to say, I just need to do whatever it is that caves into these people. That's just not what he did. It's not what he did. He's the one that says, I'm gonna talk to God. And he does. He says, what should I do? What do you want me to do? And God says this. He says, I want you to take the staff that you struck the Nile with, go to Horeb, and when you hit the rock, it will flow with water and the people will drink. So once again, you have a water problem. You've seen water problems before in Exodus. You have another one here. And God says, once again, in a way that's going to be kind of eye-popping, I'm gonna provide water for the people. So Moses did exactly that. And this is why you know that Moses' heart as a leader leading people that are discontented, grumbling, complaining. What Moses did was follow God in spite of that, and God still provides for the people in spite of the people. I mean, this wasn't the moment where God's sitting there going, you know, I hear your hearts, and your hearts are great, and it just makes, I just love you so much. I mean, he does, but in this case, it's not because of them. They're constantly pushing back that God is gonna provide for them, constantly in spite of all the provisions that you've seen before. So Moses did his job, and he takes them to the place at Horeb, and uh, he names the place Masa and Meribah. He gives it two names. Masa, by the way, means tested, and Meribah means, appropriately, quarreling. So the people, once again, are facing a test, and they don't look so good, and what's even worse is, is they're fighting with each other because, well, again, they want some water. So where do you do? You turn on each other. And it's what they did. 
The key to the verse in all of this in Exodus chapter 17 is in verse seven because it says this and it comes in the form of a question. Is the Lord among us or not? Is the Lord among us or not? So here they are at Rephidim, fighting with each other, questioning Moses, the leader. And then, because I know you're like, things can't get worse. Well, yes, they can. Because in verse eight, there's this guy named Amalek. And Amalek comes and attacks them. So you've got this group that is fighting with each other. They're traveling. You need to remember, they're not a military. This isn't, the, this isn't the United States Army that's traveling from Egypt back to the Promised Land. This is a bunch of nomads. These are people that got the stuff on their backs and they're just trying to get back home. And then this group comes up and attacks them while they're doing that. You, you would probably think at this moment, oh, you've got to be kidding me. I mean, when does this stop? Well, Deuteronomy actually spells the story out a little bit more clearly as to what's happening. The Amalekites, they were pretty brutal uh, toward the Israelites. They begin with this attack at Rephidim. And in Deuteronomy 25, this is something it says in verses 17 to 19. It says, remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt. When you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and they attacked all who were lagging behind. And just so you know, that usually means the women and the children. The ones that were lagging behind were usually the women and the kids and the Amalekites would go after them. It's like, don't forget that. They have no fear of God. And when the Lord your God gives you rest from all the enemies around you and the land he is giving you to possess as an inheritance, you will blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven and do not forget. That's a pretty strong statement, don't you think? Because you have some people that are attacking the people of God while they're just trying to get back home. These people are opportunistic and they want to wipe out the Israelites on their journey. And God says, that ain't gonna happen. So Moses, you see in verse nine of chapter 17, Moses tells this guy named Joshua. Now Joshua, just so you know, if you're in a time of war, it's good to have a warrior on your team, right? It's good. And Joshua is a warrior. So Moses tells Joshua, he says, I want you to go select men for a fight. And he would station himself on the hilltop. This is Moses with God's staff in his hands. You're about to go lead my troops in battle. I'm about to go up on the hill. Now, maybe if you're Joshua, you go, how about you go down into the battle and I'll go up on the hill, right? But Joshua's the warrior. And literally like this, he has to come up with a plan because the Amalekites are already attacking. So that's what Moses said to do. I'm taking the staff. I'm going up on a hill. You go into battle. Now, why does the staff even matter? It's called God's staff. But think of some of the things that God did with staffs in the Old Testament. I mean, Aaron's rod was the one that turned into a snake in the Pharaoh's court. Imagine being there. That was probably pretty cool, right? When the Egyptian magi also turned their staffs into snakes, the snake that had been Aaron's rod swallowed theirs up in Exodus chapter seven. I would have enjoyed seeing that. It was Aaron's rod that God used to turn the water of Egypt into blood. You saw that in Exodus chapter seven. And remember what was mentioned here? The rock, the, the staff that will strike the rock was the one that was dipped into the water. This is what it's in reference to. And it was Aaron's rod that summoned the plagues of the frogs in Exodus chapter eight. These aren't TCU fans. 
These just, you're welcome. But it also brought in the gnats. So before you underestimate the power of a stick, there's a lot of history with that stick. And God is saying, I want you to go up on a hill and you raise this up. Raise it up. And Moses says, I will. And Joshua, you go down and you take them out. And so in verse 11, here's what you see. Imagine holding something up. Imagine you've got a rod and you're holding this rod up like this. How long do you think you could go? An hour, two hours, three hours? I don't know. But when Moses' hands were raised, here's what we do know. Israel was winning. When they were down, Amalek started to win. So you would probably think, whatever it takes, let's keep that boy's arms up because it is the key to victory. So you have these two guys. One is named Aaron. You've probably already heard of him. And another guy named Hur. Aaron and Hur supported Moses' hands for the battle. More than that, you know what they did? They come up to the guy. They drop a stone under him. They're like, sit down. And he sits down. And they're literally sitting there holding his hands up for the battle. Because when his arms drop, they start to lose. They saw it. The key to the victory was as much what was happening on the hill as what was happening down in the valley with Joshua. Better went on the hill. And that's what gives you victory in the valley. Now Moses, you know, he had two brothers with him whose only job was to make sure that his hands did not fall during battle. And we're reminded this morning of a pretty important truth. Sometimes you're going to get tired. Physically, you're going to get tired. Spiritually, you are going to get tired. We are reminded in this passage that's a part of the journey. And one of the reasons that we should be deeply connected to a local body, to a church, is because we have the strength of an Aaron or a Her for the battle that we're going through. They hold you up when your soul gets heavy. They will literally hold your arms up when it's time for the fight. They'll keep your hands pointed up, which is where it's got to go. Everybody needs it. You know, sometimes, sometimes trying just isn't enough. And let me tell you what I mean by that. If I were to walk up to you after we're done today and I said, hey, I want you to go and run a marathon right now, like right now, probably you would look at me and say, that's the most ridiculous thing that you've said all day. And what if I followed up with this? No, oh, just try harder. How many of you would think, that's some great counsel. I never thought of that. Or how many of you would think something like this? I'm not going to be able to finish. I mean, I'm just not going to be able to finish. Sometimes trying isn't enough. So you have extra resources and strength for what you cannot do on your own. And you see in this story the two places that it comes from. The Lord himself and the Lord's people. That's one of the reasons that we're a part of something that's bigger than ourselves. In verse 13, by the way, just so you know the result, I know you're wondering, they're thirsty, they get attacked. What happened? They win. They win. Joshua beats Amalek and his army. In, in fact, in verses 14 and 15, here's what it says. It says, write this down on a scroll as a reminder and recite it to Joshua. I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek under heaven and Moses built an altar and he named it Jehovah Nissi. The Lord is my banner. He's my banner. How many of you have something that you've written down so that you will never forget 
a time that God did something amazing in your life. Never forget it. That was this moment for them. So whenever you're fighting a battle, you give it 100% in the valley. That's what Joshua did. Get all the help that you need from, for your hands in the fight. Keep your presence on the mountain because that's where their spiritual battle is taking place. I will blot out the memory of Amalek. It's not just you're going to win the battle. It's you're going to wipe him out. That's a pretty good win, right? Here's what that means, though. And spiritually, here's what this means for us. It means that we have to fully deal with the evil that's associated with the situation that we're in. Notice what Joshua was asked to do. Notice what Moses was asked to do. To completely wipe out the evil. Not to mess with it, but to completely wipe it out. God wanted to eradicate Amalek because he knew if he didn't, he was going to be coming back. It's what he did. It's almost, it's almost like if you had a disease that you knew was a terminal disease, but the doctor says to you, we can operate on this, and you said, I just want you to take out 75% of it. Everybody around you would be thinking, that's not a good idea. You need to just go ahead and cut the whole thing out. The doctor is telling you how to do it. God is telling Moses and Joshua here how to do it. We don't want this to keep coming back, and so it needs to be eliminated. And just so you know, in 1 Samuel 15, God had told Saul, just something to connect you with the, the Amalekites, God had told Saul to get rid of them. He's, but what does he do? He saves Agag, not the best name, but it's what he does. Saves sheep, saves cattle. In other words, they kept the things that they wanted, but they got rid of the things that they didn't, and that wasn't what God asked them to do. He said, get rid of the whole thing. The evil has to be cut out and done away with. And Saul's like, I don't know, I kind of like this stuff. See, God wants the Amaleks of your life gone completely so that there is a complete and not just a partial victory for your spiritual life. And some of you are content with the partial. Complete removal means complete victory. For Saul, this is the crazy thing in his life, is in 2 Samuel chapter 1, an Amalekite comes to David by the way, there weren't supposed to be any, right? Wipe them out. Ah. So an Amalekite comes to David and tells him that he found Saul leaning on his spear in a battle of Gilboa. A guy that's not even supposed to be around is coming to deliver a message to the king. And in fact, what he says, the Amalekite says, I was there and I actually helped him die. So what does David do? David says, all right, then I'm going to do to you what Saul was supposed to do before. And he takes him out. How many of you have seen the movie Saving Private Ryan? Can I see your hands? It's a great movie. I, I'll, I'll never forget seeing it you know, when it first came out. I was in College Station. I, I go to see it. The entire center row, uh, when I saw the movie, were World War II veterans, many of them dressed in garb. It was, it was awesome. It was awesome. But there was a soldier, one of the soldiers in the movie. He's a, a, a little bit of, of, I don't know if I want to call him cowardly, but let's just do it. Kind of cowardly. Uh, there was a German soldier that uh, he was literally listening to the German soldier stabbing the American in another room and did nothing to go help the American. Nothing. 
and the German soldier comes out. He's standing there with a gun, standing there, leaning against a wall, and the German walks by and walks out. He never did anything. All right, you go a little bit later in the movie, all right? You kind of jump down. It's a little bit toward the end of the movie. You got the same American soldier. They've come under heavy fire toward the end of the film. A number of Americans are being killed. And one of the Germans that's standing there in a trench that's killing Americans is that guy that the American before could have killed had he just interceded in that moment. Could have eradicated the evil that was there. And he didn't. He let it just go. And as a result, he was watching friends of his being killed in battle. Now, why is it that I give that example? It's because that's exactly what this story is trying to tell you with your spiritual life. For some of you, you are keeping the part of the evil in your life because you like it. And you refuse to kill it. And then the effect that it's having on you is not just the effect it's having on you, but everybody else around you because you're allowing evil to stay with you. You're accepting of it. Or, as I gave the example of the guy in Saving Private Ryan, he was just too cowardly to address it. Maybe spiritually, spiritually, we're not much different than him. Complete removal means complete victory. God's response, by the way, to Saul, just so you know, I regret that I made you king. I regret that. So when the victory was assured, you saw Moses raised a monument and it said, the Lord is my banner. Why does that matter? Let me tell you a couple things this morning. Here's the first. You raise a banner. Raising a banner is something that identifies and unifies a particular group of people. It's who you are. When you go to the Olympics and you have the American flag, it identifies you as American or German or French or whatever. For example, a military flag or standard is sometimes called a banner. In Psalm chapter 20, verse 5, it says, May we shout for joy over your victory and lift up our banners in the name of our God. In verses 6 through 8, it says, Now this I know, the Lord gives victory to his anointed. He answers him from his heavenly sanctuary with the victorious power of his right hand. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They are brought to their knees and they fall, but we rise up and we stand firm. So God as your banner means this. And this is the first thing. His purpose is fixed. His purpose is fixed. He's not shifting around in his purpose. When troops went into battle, a banner was raised up as a rallying point of proof of their purpose for what they were fighting for. On the battlefield, soldiers, because you can, especially back then, soldiers kind of get scattered out. You know, the battle kind of pushes somebody back. Your group's over here, your group's over here. But when you had a banner up, you could look and realign all of your troops because it was fixed as to what you were there for. In your banner, when God is your banner, your purpose is fixed. Spiritually distracted, lost your focus, look to the banner. Look to the banner. The second thing is that in the battle, his provision will sustain you. It will sustain you. Not just for the water, for example, that God was providing. Not just for the manna that God was providing. All good things. It's just we just know we feel desperate at times. And in those moments, Jehovah Nissi, our banner, is Jehovah Jireh, our provider. 
He's more than able to give us exactly what we need to sustain us for what we're going through. More than capable. For Moses, that included, well, I'm going to give you Aaron, and I'm going to give you her. H-U-R, not H-E-R. I'm going to give you them. Let me ask you a question this morning, my friends. How many of you know who your Aaron is? How many of you know who your her is? That when your arms start to drop, they're the ones that lift them up. God says, I've already provided. See the guys? And I'm with you. And the third thing I want you to remember this morning is his presence guarantees the victory. What's going to beat God? Yeah? I mean, if you give, if you give an extraordinary amount of time to try to figure who's going to beat God? Well, that list is going to be non-existent, right? Who has the power to do it? Nobody. Who has the resources to do it? Nobody. It's not going to happen. His presence guarantees the victory. So, question for us this morning. What if the enemy, because they had a clear enemy here, what if we're dealing with two things? One, an enemy that's out there. Amalek was out there, right? But what if we also have an enemy that's in here? What if we have that? A couple of things that I want you to remember today. Oswald Chambers said this. He said, there's nothing attractive about the gospel, which just means good news, to a natural man. The only man who finds the gospel attractive is the man who is convicted and convinced of his sin. Sometimes the evil is here. Sometimes the evil is not out there. What we have to first see is our need for God, is what Chambers is trying to say. And then what God has the power to do is to cut out and to eradicate the evil that's inside of us and remove it. That's a promise. Derek Thomas, in talking about the gospel, he said, the gospel is not God loves us, but it's God loves us at the cost of his son. And that's quite a cost. If you're sitting here this morning and you're wondering how valuable you are to God, then you don't need to look any further than the cross. That's how valuable you are. I mean, if you imagine, you know, greater love has no man than this, and he would lay down his life for a friend. And then the whole goal that you see with Christ on the cross is to remove the separation that we have from him so that he can call us friends again. That, my friends, is the gospel. And then the result you see from Paul. You know, Paul, who hated Christians, by the way, if you read his story, had murdered plenty of them, was on the road to Damascus to, well, have another hit job on some more Christians. Not the best guy in the world, as a friend of mine says. He was the Osama bin Laden of that time. It was the Apostle Paul, until he meets Christ, until then. And what he said in Romans 8, 38 is something that we need to remember today. He said, I'm convinced, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing. Nothing. My friends, this morning, the question isn't, are you fighting a battle? You are. The question this morning is, what battle are you fighting? Isn't it good to know that God is on your team? That he sustains you and he guarantees you a victory. Now notice, you're in a battle. That's not fun. But he sustains you and he guarantees you a victory. 
We hope you have enjoyed the podcast. For more information about our church, visit www.woodridge.org.